Welcome to Inside Stories, where Baltimoreans discuss perspectives on incarceration. Our first guest is Mr. Alonzo Turner Bay. I could have made all the drug money in the world. None of that money would be worth the 31 years I spent in prison. None of that money. I don't care how much money a person makes. If a person tells you that it was worth it, Man, you got to check that person because something might be wrong with them psychologically. I'm going to tell you this. The people for ethical treatment of animals, if you put two dogs in there, Peter will be in front of the prison protesting and they will make some type of changes in the law. But if you put two humans in there, it's okay. And, and imagine this, living in your bathroom with another person with a, with a, with a tub at, put a bunk bed right there. And y'all got to do everything in that cell. I did five years on lockdown. Imagine being in there when somebody decided they want to use the bathroom. You got to smell it. That's where I lived for 31 years in a six by 10 with another man. You may have read about the crack era and stuff like that, especially in Washington, D.C. or in this era. Uh, drugs was running rampant. I got involved with selling drugs. It wasn't something I had to. Because both my parents worked fairly decent jobs. You know, uh, I remember one time I got my learners and, uh, we, me and my father was driving and, uh, we were driving on Sheriff Road and it was this pretty red convertible BMW. And I was like, Dad, I like that. And he told me, he said, you graduate from school, I buy for you. Now, remember, this is an era when drugs was plentiful. I didn't wait, man. I didn't wait. My impatience took me to a place, man, that I wished for no person or no juvenile ever to go. I started dibbling and dabbing in the drug game. You know, hanging out with guys that was much older than me. And uh, I was selling crack. I got caught up with a guy. He was 25. And uh, we was, I was selling drugs and things of that nature. And uh, I got robbed by uh, a guy and his friends. And uh, it was a situation where they were setting me up to get robbed. I end up, the guy ended up coming back about two days later. And I ended up shooting him one time in the chest. My father was hurt. And I'm going to tell you why. My father got three other brothers. It's all together. It's eight of them. Four boys, four girls. My father never been to prison. Served in the military during Vietnam, got out of Vietnam. I went to school every day. I took a plumbing and heating. My brother and sister went to school. My father was proud that he didn't ever been in prison or any of his children. Because out of all the grandchildren, I was one of the most smartest. I didn't get in trouble. So it was a shock on the family when it happened. During my incarceration, me and my father had a falling out, and uh, it hurt me. My father passed away December the 18th, 1999. And because of my stubbornness and his stubbornness, we didn't speak for the last few years of his life. And I carried that bird. But in carrying that bird, I try to make sure everything I do, I know that he's proud of. I became politically active around about 2000, maybe a little more than that. 
I'm going to take you back a little bit. In September 1995, then-governor, Democratic, Paris Glendening, he was down in the polls in the state of Maryland. He was going to lose the election. He came to Jessup Correctional, Maryland Correctional Institution of Jessup. At that time, it was called Annex. And he stood on a hill and he said, life means life. Nobody who is serving a life sentence will ever be paroled, therefore violate Maryland law. In 1932, Maryland uh, parole system said if you're serving a life sentences, we'll parole, you'll be eligible for parole after 15 years, but the governor had to sign for it. He said he would not sign anybody parole papers under any circumstances. He told the parole board never to send any papers to him, even those who was terminally ill and dying. That stayed in place all the way up until last year. Every governor backed that. I became a little more politically active in 2000 with the help of Walter Lomax. He served 40 years for a crime he did not commit. Uh, he found an organization called Maryland Restorative Justice. And this brother educated me about the legislative process. He educated me about senators, about delegates, how to write them, get them, write them back. And, uh, and I've been doing it every year. Just writing them, trying to push the lifeless bill to remove the governor from the parole process. A lot of people refer to me as a jailhouse lawyer because I learned the law in prison. And uh, I would have, I would write people to have them come in and they like what they heard about my organization and our conversation. And uh, around about 18, uh, when I seen Washington, D.C. pass their bill, which is called IRA, the Reduction of uh, Incarcerated Act. And uh, I went after that. After then, I just began to put my pen to the pad and I was getting a lot of rough drafts and I, guys who I knew knew the law in prison, I would pass it around and ask them what they think. I would bounce it off. And uh, I thought got me a nice, good, rough draft together and I put all my pieces in public. I don't type. I don't know how to type. Everything I did in prison, I did by our handwriting. And I wrote a lot of politicians. I sent this, this I, I got it typed up. I sent it to every senator and every delegate. That means I sent out over 200 letters. Two people responded. Delegate Irk Burns out of PG County and Delegate Jazz Lewis out of PG County. Both of them is out of, I think, the 25th or the 26th district. And uh, about two years ago, Irk Burns turned it into what was called the Second Chance uh, Act. Jazz Lewis submitted the bill word for word verbatim for the past two, maybe three years, and this year it passed. I, I just couldn't give up. Because I looked at myself and I looked at other men who were juveniles, other women who were juveniles, and they were serving these sentences. And there's a guy named Gary Miller I know. He'd been locked up since 1965. He went to prison at 16. He remembered when prison was segregated. He's still locked up today. This man been in prison since before Martin Luther King got killed. I was released last year, October the 16th. Everybody was talking about 4th of July. I said, my Independence Day is October the 16th. I was released out of prison approximately 1245, 1246. I walked out of prison gates after 31 years, six months and 15 days uh, of a life sentence as a juvenile, a first-time offender. Man, uh, all praise due to God. Because if it wasn't for my belief in God, I'm going to tell you the truth, I wouldn't be here. I've, I've known friends 
who was in prison as a youth, as a juvenile, uh, I watched them give up and hang themselves, commit suicide. I've seen men OD. You know what I'm saying? I've seen things happen to men in prison, uh, man, that the average person couldn't handle. You know, there are still things and traumas that I've witnessed and I've seen in prison that I'm that I have compartmentalized that I haven't even unpacked yet. You know, I'm going to tell you a story. Prison teaches you how to read the environment, because in prison, if you ain't reading the environment right, you can die. The tension in the air in prison dictate if you go outside your cell or not. If I come out my cell and I look around and the tension is thick and I don't know what's going on, I'm locked back in. I was in prison the day that the officer lost his life. Officer David McGuinn had been receiving death threats. They'd be getting notes on him and things like that. And uh, the night he was killed, man, that was a horrible night. You could feel the tension in the air. It was kind of thick. And uh, I knew something would happen because I worked in an infirmary on the midnight shift in the institution prison hospital. They usually hit my door for work around about 10, between 10 and 10, 15. When my door did not get hit and I heard the helicopter land, I knew something horrible had happened. And I turned on the news and I seen that an officer had been murdered. I knew the officer, me and him spoke on many occasions. They called him Homeland Security. He was one of those officers who liked to go way and beyond his job. He would, you know, write his coworkers up, always trying to shake down and find contraband and do things. One day I was asking him, you know, man, why do you do what you do? He said, man, I want to make prisoners safe. I say, man, you can't do it by yourself. If your warden and higher ups is not on the same page as you, things ain't going to work out. One year before he was killed, April the 1st, 2005, I saved the life of a female correction officer. It was a guy in prison who has a reputation for assaulting female. It was the one correction officer. She weighed about 100 pounds soaking wet. He tried to rape her. I intervened, saved her life. Like a day or two later, and one of the female officers, and she was like, Lonzo, you she like Turner Bay, because everybody referred to me by Turner Bay. You was a blessing. I had male officers would just walk up to me and say, thank you. I'd be like, man, what's going on? What you talking about? they say, man, thank you. And I had this one officer, he thanked me every day for a month. He would just always say, thank you, man. And then one day I asked him about it. And he said, man, you ain't had to save her. And she was a police, but you didn't see her as a police. You seen her as a woman and you saved her life. I still to this day got the notarized letter that she wrote on my behalf. When I saved that woman life, I sat in my cell and I cried for about two, three days. And I asked myself, say, man, how did you put yourself in this position where you put your life online for a correctional officer? And if that that was my aha moment, that I'm not the same person I was when I came to prison. I knew then that I was a new correctional officer is only an occupation. Being a woman, a child of God is who you are.
I'm only a convicted murderer because of the act that I commit. But I am a child of God by nature. It's only when we act in line with the things that God put in us that, man, things change. You know? And that's why I work with our youth. Because I know they, I know who they can be. I know what they can do. All they need is somebody to hug them and love them. And I used to do that to the young guys in prison. They'd be talking trash to me and all. Oh, man, I don't want to hear that. i walk up to them and grab them and give them a hug. i say, this is what you need, a hug. Your father ain't hug you, so I'm going to be your father the day I'm going to hug you. They'd be like, man, get off me. But they'd be laughing. I can feel them laughing because a lot of them ain't never been hugged before. I've been hugged by my father, by my grandfather, by my great-grandfather. So I know what it feels like to be hugged by a man who genuinely care about you. I know they can do better. I know they can because I know what I could have done. Our youth want to do right. They want to do good. They want to live up to be the best of their potential. But, man, we can't keep throwing them away because I'm tired of seeing our youth go to waste. Every country has a natural resource, their most precious economy. America don't have a natural resource that come out the ground. So our best next thing is our children. This country cannot thrive without its youth. So how is it we the only country on the planet Earth, not even China, not even South Africa, or any other country, locks their youth up for the rest of their life? Our second guest is Mr. Mario Demby. My dad died when I was 12 years old, so that's pretty much like when everything went went left, you know. So, because I actually been a juvenile, I've been to Charles Dickey Junior School and all of that too before prison, you know. So I did the little group homes and all of that, you know. So I've been through a lot in my life. I've been through a lot and learned a lot. When I first got incarcerated, I was I got sentenced to five years but I was selling drugs on the inside and I caught an additional seven years. And somebody told on me, they couldn't, they couldn't oppress us. It was, we had like a little, uh, we had, it was like a little group. We had like a little clique we had. It was like 10 of us and nobody couldn't oppress us, you know? So they told the police on us and they caught us bagging it up red handed. I was like cold hearted in there. So I stabbed the guy and I went on lockup for like, I did 180 days on lockup. I did six months. I read a lot of books, but I like, it was like kind of, and I exercised a lot too. So it was like, it went fast actually. Then I had people like looking out for me on, you know, when I was on solitary. So it was like, I had a radio when I wasn't supposed to have one. I had commissary. So it was like, I just, it was like, it, I was okay. I was living like a king. So it didn't even, it didn't even bother me at that time. I actually had a cell phone when I was in there because I was like, like I said, I was involved with, you know, with, you know, heavy drug activity. So I had privileges, privileges that other was, you know, other people didn't have. So other people was like out there trying to like fighting over the phone. I'm in my cell with my cell phone, you know, so then you got correction officers bringing that in. The Mario then was all about himself, selfish, um, self-centered, um, didn't care about nothing but himself, you know, or what he could get or what he could do. And when I had to break it down to my mom that I wasn't, my mom and my son and my family that I wasn't coming home when I was supposed to be coming home, that's when it hurt. That's when it, that's when it actually set in. It hurt me more hurting them than actually myself. So I had like butterflies when I first came home because, you know, things change over the years. 
you know, so I was kind of nervous. I didn't even come outside for the first eight months of being released. I would work and come home. So it was all about family. I didn't want to go outside. I didn't want to do nothing. I didn't want to be around like homeboys, you know, or old associates or none of that. All I wanted to do was be around family. I was very disappointed in myself, but I actually needed that. I think I needed that because before I, before, if I had to went home, you know, by doing the little five years that I, the five years that I had, if I yeah. did that, I had the same intentions to come home and do the same thing. So I'm kind of glad that that happened because it changed my whole mindset. It changed everything. I mean, it's just like after being locked up for a numerous amount of years, it's just like a, it's a, it's just that feeling that you have. It's a feeling that you have. It's like unexplainable. If you haven't actually experienced it, it's just mm-hmm. a feeling of being nervous. Like not a threat, but it's just like you back into society. Like when I came home, I was still taking showers <laughs> with my boxers on. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was still doing that. So I guess that's the only problem that I really had. Like when I came home, it took me a while. Like my girl, my wife would tell me like, like you're home now. You don't have to do that. Nah, actually not. Cause I used to see guys come. I used to see guys like go home and come back within like 30 days, 90 days. I'm like, like you didn't want to like, why didn't you want to stay home? Like, like what's wrong? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? What happened? It's hard out there. Yeah, like when you in the chow hall, I mean, you eating, you know, they rushing you out. You know, as soon as you sit down, they rushing you out, you know. So when you come home, I mean, I came home and they had a party for me, you know. So I'm eating at the table. So I'm eating faster than everybody else. So everybody else looking at me like, what's wrong with him? The Mario now is a family man, lovable, caring, knowledgeable, you know, filled with a lot of wisdom and a lot of love. And, you know, I just, I pretty much try to pass that to, you know, the, the, you know, the, the youth out here as well. And I thank God that my son is the total opposite of how I was. You know, like he's the total opposite. So I'm glad that he don't, you know, he didn't have to experience what I had to experience. You know, and for the youth now, it's like the youth now, they don't have any, you know, they don't have no leadership. They don't have any role models. That's why when I see them out here in the streets, I try to pull them up and I talk to them, try to motivate them. But, you know, they still have their own mind. They still have their own own way of life where they're they still going to make their own decisions you know but I still try to guide them in the right direction our final guest is Mr. Alan Muhammad I looked at you know for a father on the corner my hero or my mentor or you know someone that I could look up to and the corner became a surrogate dad to me, you know, because my father passed away when I was seven. I have uh, nine siblings, five girls, four boys. I'm the youngest of the boys. And uh, we came up kind of poor. You know, I've learned that the word ghetto, when we talk about that, we make our communities ghetto. My mother, she's 96 now. And um, she would always tell us, do the right thing, go to school, do the right thing you know, send us to church and things like that of, that, of that nature. But when I looked around and I saw all the guys that was on the corner making money, selling drugs and stuff like that, we was wearing a lot of hand-me-down clothes. And I made a choice to say, okay, I want to be like this guy, that guy. I was basically being used because I was a kid, you know. But the guys would give me a, a little couple hundred dollars, you know, take me and buy me clothes and tennis and stuff like that and send me on my way. 
and tell me they'd meet me the next day. All I would do had to hold their stash for them. But as things grew along, they would put me out there on the corner, taking the drugs to the guy and stuff like that. One time, my mother friend came around the corner and she seen me serving a guy. And she told my mother. And my mother told me when I came in that day, she said, you know, you have three choices. You can go to school and finish school, get a job when you finish, or go to the military. Or, well, really four choices. She says, or get out my house. And I was uh, 15, get ready to turn 16 then. My second to the oldest brother had had our door kicked in before by selling drugs. And my mother said she wasn't having this again. So I thought I could pull the wool over her eyes and do it on the next corner. This particular time, she came from work. She was working at Maryland Cup Company at that time. She came and she saw me on the corner. And she saw me serving someone. And it was crazy. You know, you're talking about having fear in your heart. My heart was in my mouth because I knew, you know, I had to expect something when I was going in. So when I went, I tried to make it the latest time to go in and thinking that she was asleep. So we had vestibules in our house. You had to open up one door to get go through the other door. So when I got to the door, I opened up the door. I couldn't push the door too much because she had put my clothes and stuff in the, in the, in the vestibule. So she, she looked out the window and she told me, she said, you can put your key in the mailbox and take your SHIT out of my vestibule and get away from here. When I felt that sense of rejection, you know, in my mind, I said, okay, they, you know, they rejected me. I don't care. You know, I don't care. So I started doing that because I, I felt like by me not having a father and it was other fathers, the guys that could turn to their father and stuff like that. And me not understanding what death meant, you know, I felt like people was doing me wrong. My family did me wrong. You know, my father seemed like, you know, he had left when we needed him and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it, it felt real hard to me. I felt heartbroken because I didn't have a father. And I told myself, okay, uh, that I, when I have children, that I'm going to be a better father, you know, uh, and I'm just selling myself games and, and lies and all of that because being a better father, would I would have been doing what my mother told me to do, you know. And mind you, I was already turned 16, fast and young. I had a little girlfriend living around the corner from me. So I went to her house, and I, and I explained to her what happened. So she said, look, I got to sneak you upstairs because my mother, I don't want to let my mother know that you're here. A couple weeks went by, and her mother was – facing an alcoholic, but she was a good woman, a real good woman. And we all have our problems. So she explained to her mother that, you know, I got put out the house for some other reason, right? And that I would pay her to live there for a while. So what I would do is that I would buy her a drink or to keep her boozed up, and I would give her $100 every other day. As time went on, I got caught up by what we was calling then the knocks. You know, they caught me with some drugs in my pocket. Um, I went to court and uh, they put me on probation. It was definitely a wake up call, but it was more, uh, you know, I was nervous. I, I was scared, but I chose the corner. Like I said, the corner became a surrogate dad for me. My dad came off the corner because I looked up to these people on the corner, you know, and I started making choices and distinctions from who I wanted to be, you know, on that corner. So basically my whole childhood. I gave it away, you know, to the plantation. Before you go to prison, you hear a lot of things about prison. 
you know, guys getting raped, you know, uh, being used, getting hung and stuff like that, you know. So I, I was nervous. My, my heart was more than in my mouth. It was, it was every, you know, seemed like my heart had bust. And, and if I said something or move, you can see me shaking. My first incarceration was, uh, I had caught a six year sentence. Uh, I did two years on that sentence. Uh, I did a shooting because this guy stabbed my sister in the neck. So I had a gun in my bag and, um, and I shot at him when I went to court. You know, the judge told me I took the law in my own hands and he sent me to six years. You know, so I was so frightened and, and phones wasn't in the prison system. Then you had to ask your counselor to ask the captain, could you come up to the office and make a call? <laughs> I was so scared. I was trying to get up to the council office every day to make a call, to call my mom to tell her, get me a lawyer to get me out of here, to get me out of here. I won't do it again. I won't do it again. You know, and all this type of stuff. Deep down in my heart, I was lying. But I did two years on it. And it made me grow bitter because I felt like I was doing the right thing by protecting myself. And I thought the judge did the wrong thing by giving me this time. So, you know, you had to, you had to learn real quick. I, I knew then I had to become a man, you know, because I had no help. And I knew people were in prison from off the street. And if you didn't have your business in, in prison, you know, then, you know, guys will try your hand, you know, to molest you or to rape you. You know, so when I went through that experience, I, I was so grateful to God to get out of it. But deep down inside, I was bitter with the system. I was angry with the system. I was angry with society. And I tried to go to the military to say I wanted to change my life. By me having this strike on my record back then, you know, people was checking your record to give you a job and all that. And when I went to the military, I went to the place to go to the military, he told me I had to get this stuff expunged off my record. And I'm like, get expunged? How the hell I do that? Because I didn't know what it was. And a lot of people turned me down, and it made me turn back to the streets. My second incarceration, I had caught uh, a 50-year sentence. My charge was uh, second-degree murder. Uh, they gave me 30 years for the murder and 20 years for the gun. I did 30 years in prison straight. They had shop programs that you could go to work in. They also had college where college professors was coming in and, um, you would, you take college courses. Uh, I chose to get my barber's license, which I did. You know, I achieved that. So uh, I was doing pretty good. Then they put me in the officer's uh, barber shop. I would cut the warden hair. I would cut the director hair. I was cutting some of the um, women hair and stuff like that while I was in there. It, it, it opened up the door for me because I was being trusted by a lot of people. And um, we came up, a couple guys and us, we came up. You know, like I said, they, they had all different type of programs and stuff. But we came up with an idea, you know, to uh, start a project for first-time incarceration uh, youth that came that was coming into prison, and uh, I dropped the idea on the warden while I was cutting his hair one day, and I told him that a uh, you know a group of us would like to start a program to talk to the first-time youth offenders that's coming in. People was tricking you when you went in there. People was raping you and molesting you and things of that nature, and this stuff was still going on. And I explained that to the warden that, you know, these guys coming here with, with nothing, 
and they asked to borrow things, not understanding, you know, the rules and regulations of this different world. How they would fall in the trap. So they allow us to start, you know, this youth act program. So it made me feel good that the things that I was saying to the guys that was coming in, you know, because I had to be what I was saying, you know, my model had to be that inside of the jail. You know, when we stepped out of this room and going back into, you know, the uh, jail system, you know, you have to be that. So you have to, you know, pull your stuff together and you have to make a serious decision. Now, I didn't make this decision when I first went in there. You have to, you have to be there first, you know, find out, you know, how do I deal with this world in here? You know, I still had a street mentality. It was, to me, it was kill or be killed. You know, do what you had to do. When I first came home, uh, I went to social service and, um, I was getting, um, uh, a couple of dollars every month in food stamps and stuff like that. And I asked them, you know, uh, could I get some medical, uh, medical, medical care, uh, uh, benefits and stuff like that. And when they told me yes, and I asked them, well, do they know a good place where I could see a therapist at? And uh, they sent me to this place, a wonderful lady, Caucasian woman, wonderful, come from Chicago. She was older. And, um, we used to sit down and we used to talk and meditate. And she would give me certain um, exercises to do. Um, but she had to go back to Chicago because her mother wasn't doing that good. And she was an elderly woman herself. So I understood. But it made me cry because we got so close together. And she understood where I was coming from. And she put in extra time in terms of uh, being involved in my life to help me try to work through some of the things that, was still affecting me psychologically. Um, when I first came home, I went to this uh, welding company, and my credentials was better than the guy that was before me and after me. And when I went into an interview, and when she went down the application, she asked me, you know, was you ever incarcerated? And I paused, and I was asking myself in my mind, you know, should I tell her the truth or should I lie? You know, and I said, I'm going to tell her the truth because this would be the best way of me getting something, you know, with my belief in God. So I told her, I said, yes, I was incarcerated before. I said, but it had been a long time ago. It was back in 1985. Um, I said, I haven't been to prison since then. And then she said, would you mind expounding on what you was incarcerated for? And it kind of, I kind of knew then, right then and there, that I was going to be a scratch from this list. I say, is that a requirement? Do I have to do it? She said, no, you don't have to do it. She said, but uh, I would prefer you to do it. Okay. I told her, I said, okay, um, well, I was young. I come out of uh, a drug-written area. Some of us would call it probably ghetto and thing, things of that nature. I said, but it was an area where you grew up and you had to make certain choices. I said, when I was young, I made the wrong choice. I said, I got in a situation where um, some guys kind of tried to rob me and I had a gun on me and, um, I shot one of the guys and he died. And, uh, she said, all right, I'm, I don't need to hear no more. <laughs> but I knew right then and there that society wasn't going to play fair with me, you know, and that I would have to make my own way. 
But I had to understand, too, on the other side of that coin, no one did this to me but me. You know, so I had to find somewhere to keep trying to put this bitterness that I had with society. A lot of people say to me, right, tell me the truth. You did 30 years straight. I say, yeah. They say, man, you're not demented. You're not crazy. I'm blessed by God. I say, so if you call that crazy, then I, I'm, I'm crazy. I say, but um, no, I'm not crazy. Do I have my moments of uh, psychological effects? I say, yeah, I had them. I say, but everybody has them. You know, I, I trusted God while I was there, and God brought me through. Thank you for listening to Inside Stories, Perspectives on Incarceration. For full interviews, please visit www.filmartsbaltimore.org slash inside hyphen stories hyphen gallery. This work was made possible by Baltimore Youth Film Arts, Johns Hopkins University, and the Mellon Foundation.